Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And hold your applause, Jerry Rowland. Socialist. And me. Socialist. <laughs> it's so funny. It's a, it's a dirty word. Yeah, people love calling politicians socialists these days. Yeah. They're just a socialist. Yeah. It's, it's weird that, you know, the fact that that is a dirty word is because we stand in a, a moment in history yeah. where it's been drugged through the mud for a hundred years. Sure. But the, the tenets of it, the, the basis of it is the same. It's virtually unchanged. And yeah. it's still... It's kind of sensible in some ways. Well, I mean, I looked at, there's been various, we're going to talk about these, but various experiments, uh, social experiments throughout the years, and some work pretty well for a little while. But it kind of dawned on me at one point, you can't account for laziness. Yeah, that's a huge And that's huge when problem. it all comes crumbling down. Yep. If everyone had that same work ethic, it could thrive. But as soon as that one dude is like, eh, I don't feel like working. Yeah, and, and I'm a sucker because uh, if I do, because I get the same junk that you do, then it's just that's the beginning of the end. Yeah, if everybody had the the work ethic of the people depicted in WPA murals and post offices, <laughs> right, we'd be fine. <laughs> Which do look uncannily similar to Soviet era depictions of workers too. Yeah, you know, because they're related. Yes. So we're talking socialism today, which is. A huge, enormous, sweeping topic, um, but we're going to try to explain it in as best of terms as we possibly can. That's right. Um, and it's really tough to talk about socialism without talking about capitalism, too. Yeah. Because they're antithetical, pretty much. Sure. But they're both based on the same idea that f- from your economy springs forth everything else. Yeah. Like Karl Marx, Joseph Engels, the yeah. guys who uh, got together and wrote the Communist Manifesto. Yeah. Um, they basically said, it's the economy, stupid. Yeah. What was I, that from? That was James Carville. Was that Carville? I thought that was some... Uh, no, I'm, I was thinking of something else. I was thinking of You're thinking commercial. of I'm with stupid. No. <laughs> or, yeah. no, I know what you're thinking of. Lose weight now. Ask me how. <laughs> <laughs> what? I can do this all day. Where's the beef? Yeah. What else? Uh, I can't think of any other ad ever. I don't want to grow up. No, there was one stupid, that was an oil uh, or a gas commercial. It's the economy. A bunch of old guys sitting on the porch. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It sounds like a fracking commercial, but I don't think they're saying, like, <laughs> it's the economy, stupid. They're they're saying, just sit there and shut up, stupid. Yeah, probably I think so. That's, that's more the case. Let's just go back to James Carville. <clears throat> so he said, it's the economy, stupid. It was one of the three main talking points for Clinton's 1992 campaign. Yeah. So Karl Marx didn't say that. But the, the idea was that you have this economy, and depending on what you do with it, you can either have a... a completely literally utopian society yeah where everyone's equal nobody wants everyone's taken care of and there is no class stratification yeah or you can go the opposite way and let this economy run on its own devices and step out of the way and what you have is capitalism and in marx and Engels' opinion that was basically the most inherently evil thing a state or government institution could do is yeah. to just let an economy run 
rampant. Right. Because you have something called classes. Sure. You have stratification. Yeah. You have... Um, Wealth gap. Yeah. And basically the exploitation of the very people who are producing the the goods in a society, the workers. Yeah. The workers uh, stay poor and the, the rich get richer, the yeah. poor get poorer. Right. Uh, and like you said, it was based on this word utopia. Um, a British writer named Thomas More in 1515 coined that term. He wrote a book called Utopia about a fictional island in the Atlantic Ocean. And um, there was no private property. There were no locks on the doors. Yeah. Uh, houses. <clears throat> you rotated houses every 10 years. So even if your free house, you're, you thought your neighbor's was better, 10 years, you're going to get that same house. Yeah. So don't worry about it. You just hope your neighbor doesn't trash it in the meantime. Exactly. They had uh, all wore the same clothes. There were no fancy clothes, six-hour work days, uh, free health care, state-endorsed euthanasia, which in 1515 was pretty radical. Yeah, there was a lot of killing back then. Uh, divorce was okay. So this was his version of utopia. And uh, one thing we'll talk about is utopian socialism. That that word utopian was tagged to it later on as like a pejorative, kind of like there is no utopia, you naive ninny. Yeah. So your your socialism, your utopian socialism is not possible. Oh, I see. You know. Very clever. Sure. It's funny what people can do with words to just completely tarnish the concept. Because you can't account for laziness. <laughs> so you've got Thomas More writing in 1515, and he coins the term utopia. And it it's not in and of itself socialism, but it has a lot of the hallmarks of socialism, right? Sure. Like there's no... It's a classless society. Yeah, house swapping. Yeah, and um, it's a it's a society that's operated and owned by the people, the very people who are producing goods. Yeah, and we should have said up front there are dozens of types of socialism. So this this could be like a twelve part series, and it will be. And this is no, my God, no. Well, no this this one I was thinking this fits into what's become our socioeconomic suite. You know, we have a death suite. Sure. We've done so much economic stuff and socioeconomic no, stuff. My brain bleeds. That I feel like we, we've got a suite coming up that I'm going to put together. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Thomas More comes up with Utopia, but he's not the first person to ever write about the concepts, the basic foundation or principles of um, socialism. That award goes to Plato, who described a place in his Republic um, that basically had two classes, the governed yeah. and those who govern. Yeah. And the governed were completely subservient to those who governed, but those who governed were just basically inherently perfect in every way, shape, or form. Yeah. And aside from that, there, the, there, it was classless, right? Everybody else was very much equal, and the governed were this hierarchy of a blunted pyramid. Yeah. Um, but they decided... Who was going to make what and in what amounts? So you have this hallmark, this other hallmark of socialism, which is complete and utter government control of an economy. Yeah. Which constitutes a planned economy. Yeah. And, uh, things, uh, we were talking about utopian works between 1700 and 1850. These were very popular because, uh, these themes were because there was a lot of oppression going on. In that 150 years, still is around the world, of course. But uh, it became a popular theme in books and novels uh, to write about these utopian societies. Like, man, it could be so much better. No oppression, no slavery. Uh, everyone is, all boats are rising. Um, and then a mm-hmm. French revolutionary named Francois-Noël Babouf is uh, considered the first socialist because 
he is the first one who um, said, you know what? No more private property. We should all be equal. And I'm the first socialist. Yeah, he. The reason he, didn't he was say that, I don't think. no, and he had his head cut off by the uh, French Revolution at age 37 for his views. See, see where that got him. Technically, um, today he's referred to as a revolutionary communist. Yeah, um, we should go ahead and cover that. Yeah, because socialism was the word was around when he was around. Yeah, so he was called a socialist, but his views were so militant. Um, that he's now considered a revolutionary communist. And that, that sort of communism is basically like socialism with guns. Yeah. If you're a communist, socialism is a, um, it's a transitional state. Yeah. Between a capitalist society and a communist society. So it's a temporary point. Yeah. In the glorious transition from capitalism to communism because communists know from experience now sure. that you can't just go from capitalism to communism overnight. You're going to completely cripple your economy. People are going to starve to death. You just have huge problems. So you have to go to socialism. So the the difference between socialism and com- communism is that in a socialist country, everybody's producing for the general good. Yeah. But what you receive is based on your merit. Whereas with communism, everyone's producing for the general good. And what you receive is based on your need. Yeah, and communism is is, is a militant takeover. And in, in utopian socialism, the main difference there is the idea is that everyone is on board and just gives this stuff up. There's no overthrow of the upper class because the upper class is like, no, nah, I'm on board. Right. That's in utopian socialism. With communism, though, I think it's kind of gotten the... I, I think in practice it's been uh, at the at the barrel of a gun, basically. Like Mao said, power springs from the barrel of a gun. So the idea that communism and militancy are associated has, you know, become kind of a thing. But I think theoretically, they're not necessarily related. Right. You know? Uh, And then a few others. You have um, market socialism, which Yugoslavia and Hungary had a version of in the 60s and 70s. And that is uh, most people see that as, as sort of the bridge between socialism and capitalism, where the government does own the resources, a lot of them at least, but market forces determine production and demand. So, you're... And there is incentive. Uh, in true socialism, there's no incentive to work harder. See, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think it's communism. In socialism, you're still allowed to give incentives for harder work. Well, which kind of socialism, though? Yeah. Um Remember our blimp episode? I do. Remember the helium supply that the U.S. government controls? Yeah. That's an example of market socialism. Yeah, that's a good point. I think we're d- demonstrating just how hard it is to define it because there are so many times. Yeah, and we can. You can talk about it in pure uh, terms, which we let's let's do that. And then I think if you understand, you know, just the pure definition of socialism, you can start to understand. You can recognize it in the real world, right? Right. So with socialism, you have um, no no classes. Everybody is told what to do, to what to make, where to go to work, and the production output is determined by a central planning committee. Yeah. In most cases, the government. Yeah. And then that same committee takes all these this production and distributes it according to who needs what. And the economy is completely controlled and planned, 
and uh, this plan is put into effect by the workers, and everybody's equal, and there's no private property. Yeah, and that's a tricky one too, because if you went to Soviet Russia in the '60s, mm-hmm. you go into somebody's house and they had a TV set, and that was that family's TV set. Yeah. So the distinction that I came across for private property is there's in socialism. People can own TVs, but nobody owns the factory that makes the TVs. So by the government controlling the factory that makes TVs, theoretically, you can make even more TVs and more people can enjoy the fruits of the TV factory's production. Yeah. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay. I think if you want to explain something, do it in... Explaining it in terms of TVs. In TVs. <laughs> Jerry just, uh, she went to Cuba this year, remember? Yeah. And had an experience with uh, communism that was really interesting. We should do a podcast on Cuba as a whole. I agree. And have Jerry sit in and not speak. Right. <laughs> She'll just write things down yeah. and we can relay the message. <laughs> and like I said, to understand socialism, it's you have to also understand capitalism. And capitalism is basically like the, the supply and demand runs everything and the if if somebody needs something they're willing to pay a higher price for it which means the sector over here will start to ramp up because they want to make more money that's right there's no planned economy it just changes based on the needs of the individual yeah and there's uh there's competition it's encouraged in capitalism right not so much in socialism not at all in socialism because competition is one of the great evils of capitalism in that it if according you, to socialists yeah. right if you make a bunch of money yeah. and we're in the same industry mm-hmm. i'm not making a bunch of money and i can go bankrupt and my family could starve but you're really rich yeah i like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> not imagine poor. imagine if the shoe were on the other foot <laughs> i want us to all be rich what's that called Socialism. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So I was talking about Francois Babouf, and uh, he was credited with being one of the first socialists, but the idea, the concept wasn't really popularized on a broad scale until the 1700s, thanks to something called the Industrial Revolution, yeah. which is when, as everyone knows, uh, robber barons kind of started opening factories and controlling the wealth and putting people out of work or making people work for, or offering people work, I should say, yeah. uh, for very little money. And there was a big wealth gap. It was the first big wealth gap. Um, the rich got richer in that case, and the poor got poorer. And people got, um, there was a lot of unrest because of the slave labor. And the idea of socialism kind of uh, became more popular all of a sudden. Right. It seems like any time that... Um business and industry has overstepped its exploitation of the working class. Yeah. Socialism's kind of been there to step up as a solution to that. Yeah. And people have been more prone to adopt it. Yeah, in, in tough times, obviously. Because that's one of the byproducts of socialism, of a group, uh, of the government controlling industry. That means that the government also protects the workers from being screwed over by industry. Yeah. Because you're working for the government, and the government's not seeking to screw you over. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I feel like I'm not explaining this correctly. It's driving me a little bonkers, frankly. No, you're, you're doing great. Uh, uh, because of this, um, the Industrial Revolution, though, there were these communes that started to pop up in, uh, all over the place that 
where people they were kind of socialist experiments. Yeah. Uh, one was called Brook Farm in the 1840s, uh, just outside of Boston in West Roxbury, and it was uh, founded by a Unitarian uh, Unitarian minister and his wife, George and Sophia Ripley. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know what? You can choose your job and do whatever you want to do. Um, everyone's going to get equal pay. Uh, we're going to base our little society on a guy named a Frenchman named Charles Fourier, who just died a few years ago. But he was super smart, we think. And uh, he actually coined the term feminism. So ladies are going to be equal. Yeah, that was to another men. big one. That's a huge thing because uh, this was, I mean, the 1840s. That was way ahead of its time. And uh, they had visions to build this big structure called a, a Fallon story. And that was their undoing. It seems like there's always this one thing yeah. that ruins these experiments. And that was theirs. Uh, fire destroyed it and basically bankrupted them uh, by 1847. So that was the end of Brook Farm. And that's just one example. Yeah, one of many. Because yeah. like you said, there are a lot of communes that sprung up within larger capitalist systems, but that practiced their own brand of socialism. There were Christian socialist communes. Like uh, the Shakers were a socialist community. Yeah, I was wondering about the Amish, and I looked up like our Amish socialists, and I think they have a hierarchy. Yeah, and they weren't. I don't think they're thought of as true socialists, but they have a lot of the same uh, uh, values. I think. Yeah, like we all work together. Right. We all work hard for the good of all of us. And values are what drove um, all of these socialist experiments, including the Christian socialist experiments. Because basically they were saying, hey, you know what? We don't think capitalism really jibes with Christian teachings. Yeah. We think socialism does a little more, so we're going to go off and try this. And don't even try to persecute us because religious freedom, religious freedom. Yeah. You've seen the bumper stickers, Jesus was a socialist? I haven't. Oh, well, they're out there. Last one I saw said, easy does it. <laughs> so, Chuck, you're, like you were saying, like this is Brook Farm wasn't uh, didn't exist in a vacuum. There were a lot of these socialist experiments going on. Everybody, there seemed to be two types. There was one that just wanted to just get away from the world. Like, just leave us alone. Yeah. We're doing our own thing. If you want to come join us, awesome. But we're not trying to change the world. We're just trying to change the world, our world. Yeah. There were other ones that sought to, like, basically perform this experiment that demonstrated that this, that socialism worked and in the hopes that it would spread out to the rest of the country or the rest of the continent or whatever. Yeah. And one of them was in Scotland, formed by a guy named um, Robert Owen. Yeah, he was a Welshman. Who was a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy capitalist who decided that capitalism was evil and that he was going to use his wealth to try socialist experiments. And his first one was uh, in Scotland in um, New Lanark. Yeah, in 1786, um, he... He basically moved out there. He bought, um, like you said, he had a lot of money. He was a big philanthropist. And he bought a a mill and said, you know what? This cotton mill, I'm going to base this cooperative society around this mill. And this is going to be our foundation. That's how we're going to make our money. And uh, we're going to divide up property among everyone. And everyone's going to work the same and get paid the same. And um, it didn't work out, of course. But he was huge in... Uh, the early um, progression of of childcare, basically. Yeah, he was really big on protecting children. He raised minimum uh, the minimum age to ten. <laughs> the minimum working age. Yeah, the working age yeah. to ten, and uh, no, not minimum age. Like you have to have a child that's ten years old. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you're born under the age of ten, you go to jail. 
But um, he instituted infant child care for the first time in Great Britain. He uh, first preschool. Yeah, first preschool, first f- public library. Yeah, uh, first public school too. I think like free public school. Yeah. So he led a lot of reform, but it didn't work out in England. So he said, or I'm sorry, Scotland. I know. Well, I think New Lanark itself worked out, but it didn't catch on. And so he said, nuts to you guys. I'm going over to America where they're way more open minded. That's right. So he went over and um, there was some land in Indiana in a place called Harmony. Uh, it was actually there was already a, a commune of sorts there um, that lasted 11 years from 1814 to 1825. These, yeah, but they, they were a non-socialist religious commune, right? No, they were totally socialists. Oh, they really? were they were separatists from the German uh, Lutheran Church, and they formed their own little socialist society there uh, in Harmony and succeeded for 11 years thanks to their German work ethic. And then they decided they wanted to go back to Pennsylvania. Yeah, they just left. And then um, Owens comes in and says, hey, this land, I'd like to buy it from me. I'll name it New Harmony, and I'll start my little experiment over here in the United States and see how it works. And, and they, basically they said, did the same thing. Yeah. They said, thanks, chump. But that lasted just two years. Um, yeah, this was not Owen's fault here. Well, I mean, from what I gathered, the, the main reason that it didn't work out is that people liked it so much. It was a bit chaotic, though, and they started splintering off yeah, and forming their own fighting. communes. Right. And all these other communes started popping up, and they just couldn't survive anymore. Okay. Well, also, his business partner for the commune took all the money and left. Yeah, I didn't see that that was the main reason, though. I think they were dead in the water by that point. That might so, have been the nail in the coffin. Right. So he pulled the Mr. Burns. Yeah, exactly. So um, the, 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 that's three. There's That's just three communities. Yeah, he went, communities he went back to Ellen. He was like, all right. Yeah. I guess I'm out of here. And he Bankrupt. started. But he um, he really, I guess, got a lot of press. And raised awareness for the concept of labor reform and really helped set the stage for the labor struggles that would take place in Europe and the United States throughout the 19th century. And again, this is the result of a couple of things, but mostly the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Because in the Industrial Revolution, business owners were the, the income inequality gap was growing by leaps and bounds because business owners could buy a machine that could do the work of 10 people yeah. for a tenth of the price. And so as a result of this, you have experiments in socialism. You also have another thing grow up called um, Ludditism. You know, the Luddites, they're supposedly afraid of technology. Yeah, that's, I've been called that. That's really a misinterpretation. Yeah. Um, the Luddites like to smash technology that took their jobs. They weren't afraid of the future or anything like that. They just wanted to keep their jobs. Yeah. So Luddites sprang up at about the same time, too. So you have Luddites, socialism. And in 1848, there was what's called a revolutionary wave, similar to the Arab Spring of, what, 2012, 2013, where almost all of the monarchies in Europe faced challenges from socialist revolutions. Yeah. And most of the revolutions were crushed, but some of them had lasting effects. Like, you know how Sweden is considered a um, partially socialist state. Yeah, and, still. Um, same with Denmark and all these other countries. Yeah. France. All of them had to do with these the socialist uprising in 1848. Yeah. They made an imprint, an impact. And when the, when the revolutions themselves were crushed, they started to move over here to the U.S. And that's when you saw... A lot of these socialist experiments pop up. 
Yeah, and every country still has a lot of socialist programs um, that you could label as socialist for sure. So we'll talk more about socialism in the United States right after this. So, Chuck, we're talking about uh, socialism in the U.S., which people are like, what are you talking about? The U.S. is a capitalist society. Well, there's actually been a lot of socialism throughout the history of the U.S. Sure. There's been um, the Socialist Party. Milwaukee's had some socialist mayors. Uh, if you live in Vermont, one of your senators is a socialist, Bernie Sanders. And there's this kind of long-storied history springing out of workers' rights movements, labor movements in the United States that were supported by socialists and actually gave rise to um, the Socialist Party here in the U.S. Yeah, in uh, 1876, the Working Men's Party was formed, and then a year later changed their name to the Socialist Labor Party, and uh, of which Jack London, writer, was an early member. Good writer. Uh, <laughs> they were called the Workies, and they had someone on the presidential ticket every election from 1892 to seven, uh, 1976, and had a little I, I a newspaper. Did not know that. Oh yeah. Wow. Uh, they had a newspaper called The People that was uh, finally folded in 2008, and they even had an office in 2008. Although, uh, as of 2007, they only had 77 members, and apparently the the official meetings in San Francisco were only attended by three to six people. <laughs> that is, that's a far cry from the peak. Yeah, sure. When Eugene Debs, who was the socialist candidate yeah. for the fifth time, I think, when he was in jail uh-huh. and still managed to get a million votes in the general election for president wow. as a socialist. Not bad. And then they're down to three to six members in San Francisco. Uh, well, that was in 2007 and eight. Maybe they've, they're booming again. Who knows? But part of it is because the term socialism, since socialism is basically, in a lot of ways, antithetical to capitalism, yeah. has been, like I said, dragged through the mud over the centuries. And it was about this time. Actually, it was in 1917 that it really started in earnest. Yeah, the government uh, here in the U.S. enacted the Espionage Act and kind of tied uh, everything to, con- not everything, socialism at least to communism, and um, made a lot of things illegal to like in publicly endorse things like communism or socialism, and or um, criticize the involvement in World War One. Yeah, and so which is why Eugene Debs was in jail. By the time 1950s rolled around through McCarthyism, which we have a great episode of McCarthyism, uh, the Socialist Labor Party was waning because you did not want to be tabbed a communist. No. Unless I'm, you were a communist. I mean, you could basically like l- lose your career by being blacklisted by the McCarthy trials. And that's in the U.S. Elsewhere in the world, um, long before the 1950s, there was a, a dictator in the Soviet Union named V.I. Lenin, you might have heard of. And he was the first uh, world leader to really implement socialism on a big, broad government scale. Yeah. Up till that point, it was all theoretical. Except for or, these little experiments. Yeah, or little communes. Lenin was the one who said, let's see if this can work. Yeah, and he was a communist, but um, he uh, implemented socialist initiatives after taking over in 1917, um, nationalized industry uh, to a large degree in agriculture, um, but things were not profitable, so he kind of had to backtrack a little bit to a mixed economy. A little bit. And one of the reasons why things weren't profitable, Chuck, was what you were talking about. Was Can't account for the lazy. Yeah. <laughs> incentive. People yeah. didn't have incentive. And Lenin didn't, he hadn't figured out that 
to truly incentivize people in the absence of money, mm-hmm. you needed violence. Yeah. And so Stalin came in and recognized this so immediately. So is, you won't die? Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And tens and tens of millions of people died under Stalin's rule as he basically forced communism to work by stripping people of any kind of um, private ownership of land or farms or anything like that, instituting collectivism, and really taking communism in this communist experiment and making it function by forcing the gears together. And a lot of blood came out of that interaction. Yeah. But it, it worked for a little while. Like in the 60s, the Soviet economy was growing at a rate of about twice that of the United States per year. And this is all considering that the government is deciding exactly how the economy is going to go. Yeah. And then uh, post-World War One, there was a lot of activity in Europe, uh, socialist parties springing up in Germany, Sweden, Netherlands, Belgium, Great Britain, <clears throat> Africa, Latin America, Asia. People were dabbling in it, basically. Yeah. Gov- governments were dabbling in it. There was a wave of it in Africa in the 70s, too. Um and in part, that was because, well, there's proxy wars being fought between the United States and the USSR. Yeah. Um, but also it was because the USSR appeared successful. And uh, can we talk about the USSR for a second and how it worked? Sure. So basically, every year, the government planning committee created the GOSS plan, which is like this, the plan for the Soviet economy. They would say, okay, so we need this, 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 and this, and this, 25 million different things. And each of these 25 million different things costs this. Government sets the price, right? Right. So they would say, how can we make this happen? And they would send it down the chain, and everybody would take a look at it and figure out their plan. Like this main plan would be split into thousands of tiny sub-plans and components. And the people who are actually carrying out the work would look at it and say, okay, we can do this and this and this, and I can get you this many tons of cotton, and we can do this many tons of potatoes, and this is how we're going to do it. And they would send it back up the chain, and for the year, the economy would be planned. And it actually did work for a little while. But the problem is, it's like you say, you can't account for laziness. And there was a, you can also not account for inaction. Yeah. There was a huge criticism of this um, plan by capitalist economists who were saying, this can never work. And the reason it can't work is because in a capitalist society, you rely on the markets for information. You guys don't have a market. You have government control of the markets, so there's no real information being gleaned, so you can't possibly know who needs what where. And this very famous communist economist came back with, actually, that's not true. All we have to do is look at stocks. If we have a lot of surplus of something, then we know that we need to lower prices. If there's a scarcity of something, then we need to raise prices. Hence, communism works. And for a little while, it looked like it worked until the whole thing broke down. And the whole thing broke down was because you have people whose job it is to set prices, who are scared to death of screwing up. So they would just remain inactive and ultimately... Uh, by the time they did respond to something, it was too late and people would starve or the whole system would be totally thrown off. Because if you have a planned, managed economy, you if one little bit is thrown off, the whole thing can break down. So that ultimately is why the Soviet experiment failed. It was just too tightly controlled. That's a good one. 
All right, back to the United States. Uh, despite McCarthyism and the, the threats in the McCarthy era, there were some prominent uh, socialists in the U.S., and there still are, actually. Uh, Albert Einstein was um, famous for a paper called Why Socialism in 1949, uh, where he had a plan to, and it was all education-based, which is good, but um, he advocated for planned economies and wanted uh, every citizen to to be uh, had their livelihood insured. Um some other notable American socialists, uh, Ed Asner and Saul Bellow, Patch Adams, famous clown doctor, uh, comedian Louis Black, singer Harry Belafonte, all identify as socialists to this day. Uh, and I guess we can't talk about um, socialism without talking about Britain post-World War II. Uh, there was the, the winds of change were brewing because uh, Winston Churchill was defeated uh, in his re-election bid by Clement Attlee, who was the head of the Labor Party, and that's with a U because it's England. And uh, it was a Democratic Socialist Party and established in 1900. And Churchill was the head of the Tory Party, the Conservatives. And uh, they were, after World War II, they were the citizens were fed up. They said, our health care stinks. Uh, there's labor problems all over the place. And I don't think Churchill's got the goods to, uh, to right the ship. So we're going to elect this Attlee fella. And he had some pretty lasting changes. Uh, he, um, there were a lot of improvements under some of the nationalization policies under Attlee. Uh, like coal miners were given paid vacations. They were taken care of, uh, safety wise. They were given sick leave. Um, but of course, when you nationalize industry like that, it became unprofitable because you can't account for laziness. And there was no competition, and uh, workers weren't motivated. Uh, but his big legacy was the NHS, the National Health Service, uh, which was established in 1948, uh, which provided free medical care. And it is still in use today because it was super popular, even though uh, financially it didn't work out for quite a while. Yeah. So Scotland is talking about going independent right now. There's a referendum coming up. Oh, really? And uh, one of the main talking points is... If Scotland can go independent, that the Scottish NHS can stay socialist rather than, you know, get sold off to private industry. Right. Um, like they think is going on in England. Oh, is that what's going on right now? That's what, that's what the pro Scottish independence people are accusing the English of. I did not know that. Yeah. Interesting. Well, they love their free healthcare. Um, but a lot of it, uh, in the seventies, there was a, Incredible inflation going on over there, uh, 24% in 1975. And the winter of discontent, um, of 1978 and 1979 was a dark time over there because there were a lot of uh, major labor strikes going on and the country was headed in the wrong direction, um, until Margaret Thatcher came along. And despite what you think about her, she did right the ship, uh, economically in a lot of ways. Like Stalin. Uh, one thing she did was she reduced spending um, in education and health care. Uh, inflation went down. Unemployment rose still, though. And she started to denationalize <laughs> a lot of the major industries, uh, like the telecom industry, mm-hmm. and selling it off to the private sector, and things started making a profit again, Right, which was seen as a big victory. Yeah, so that's really um, that's a Great Britain is a good example of the response, people being... People being screwed over. Yeah. 
socialism stepping in. Yeah. Socialism getting out of control. Yeah. And then capitalism coming in. And then capitalism runs rampant. People start to get screwed over again. Socialism starts to step in. There seems to be like an ebb and flow. Yeah. Between those two. And mostly just those two. Um, especially if you consider communism socialism. It's strange. Is there like a third one out there that we're missing? Or is it really just capitalism and socialism? I don't know. Well, we'll talk more about socialism as it stands today in just a second. Let us just uh, take this message break first. Chuck, if there's anything the web has done, it's democratize humanity. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and one of the ways it's done that is now, thanks to Squarespace, anyone who wants a website can have one. Yeah, anyone who wants a great-looking and performing website. Yeah, Not some little cruddy one that you just design yourself. Right, exactly. It's also very intuitive doing this. You don't have to be a genius, which democratizes the web even further. Yeah. You can just drag and drop to create a really great-looking website. And if you find yourself in any trouble, Squarespace has world-class customer service. Yeah, it's super intuitive. You're not going to learn how to code or anything like that. But what you will get is a beautiful, clean design. Uh, your content is going to be the focus. You're going to be creating your logo. You're going to be able to sell stuff. You're going to be able to show off your art or your films or your music. It's really all there for the grabbing. Yep. Like you said, all plans have commerce options. So from hosting an entire store to accepting donations for your personal blog, Squarespace has you covered. And you can even find out for yourself risk-free. Go to squarespace.com slash stuff to start a 14-day free trial with no credit card necessary. Man, and if you like that, which you will, it's only going to cost as low as $8 a month after that. It's going to include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. All you have to do, once again, is use our offer code STUFF, S-T-U-F-F, at www.squarespace.com slash STUFF. You're going to get that 10% off your first purchase, and you're going to be glad you did it. Okay, so, Chuck, you mentioned the NHS. It's still around today. Yeah. It's an example of a socialist government system. Yes. Canada has something similar. Um, it's often very criticized as being very expensive, very inefficient, very yeah. slow. But there's a lot of people who get health care that otherwise wouldn't. Yeah, I think about 22% of every dollar uh, in Canada goes to uh, the health care system. Is that right? Yeah. That's what it says in here. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. And every Canadian I know says... Still better than what you guys got. I mean, it's definitely cheaper than what the Americans spend on health care, for sure. Yeah, like we may, we may have to wait for our MRI, but at least we're not going broke because we get sick. But that's a that's a good example of, of socialism versus capitalism. If you go to Canada, uh, if you're Canadian and you go to the hospital, I should say, mm-hmm. um, your MRI is going to cost the same no matter what hospital you go to. Right. Which I guess is zero dollars. But that, but if there if there is a charge to the government, it's going to be the same price, right? Right. Or roughly the same price. If you go to the United States, you can go to two different medical clinics in the same town, and you could have a discrepancy of maybe ten thousand dollars for a single MRI procedure. Wow. Um, and that's because in Canada, the government controls the cost of healthcare. It says this is how much an MRI costs. In the United States, there's a free market for people who have MRIs that they want to contract out to use and they can charge whatever they want so there's a big discrepancy yeah and uh they give one example in this article in canada of a woman um who had identical quadruplets that they could not 
be delivered in Canada because they didn't have the resources. So she had to go to Montana to have her babies born. So that's just one example of maybe some of the downfalls of, of socialized medicine. Yeah. So here in the United States, like you said, socialism gets tossed about as a um, it's a derogatory term. Yeah. And it, a little willy nilly, if you ask me. It, it, it is. It's also very glib. Yeah. Especially if you're saying socialism doesn't work. Right. Or socialism is uh, exists in an evil direction. Right. Because what you're talking about then is pure socialism. In pure socialist theory, depending on how you look at it, yes, maybe it does strike you as evil, especially if you think of communism as being militant. The thing is, you can make the same arguments about pure capitalism, yeah, where it's just a completely unfettered free market with no regulation whatsoever. The income inequality tends to develop and progress, and people tend to get trampled. So the idea of saying like uh, that a politician is socialist or something like that. Yeah. Um, if they're a United States politician, yeah, they probably do have some sort of socialist tendencies in that they are, they're voting to continue funding Medicare. Right. Or Medicaid. Yeah. Or welfare. Social security. Yeah. Welfare of any kind. Yeah. Any kind of government regulation in the United States. The very fact that there is a rule for a particular industry that says, no, you can't um, dump toxic chemicals into a river. Yeah. Sorry. That's socialism. That's government control over an industry in part. It's not nationalization, right. which is a hallmark of socialism where the government says, hey, uh, your board of directors is gone and these government employees now run this company. Right. Um, but it's still the same. It's still a version of socialism. So. What you have today in most Western developed nations is what's called the third way, yeah, which is a mixed economy where you have a free market and supply and demand uh, runs that market, but you still have government protections. Right. You probably have welfare programs. And that is- Public libraries. Yeah. That is, rather than this ebb and tide and spasms between socialism and capitalism, this this pendulum swinging back and forth, yeah. it feels like the two are starting to or have merged together yeah. into a hybrid that could conceivably smooth out over time. Conceivably smooth out over time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'd be great. I'm, it's possible that's what we're seeing right now. So in the future, all economies will be mixed economies. That's my prediction. All over the world? Yeah. Yeah. You got anything else? I got nothing else. Well, cool. I did read one article that I thought was interesting about um, the United States military being the ultimate socialist experiment. Oh, yeah? Do tell. Well, it was just, I think it had a lot of holes in it, but just the idea that uh, the military, like, uh, you dress alike, you all live, you know, you have different ranks, of course, but you're um, essentially equal, all working together for the greater good. Uh huh. Um, it was an interesting perspective, but like I said, it had holes. It's like Swiss cheese. Yeah. it's a It's a good idea, though, right? It was interesting. So um, what that sounds like it's talking about is is what people, I think, are ultimately saying when they're saying, like, communist, capitalist pig, that kind of thing. And they're throwing, like, slander back and forth from sure. either way. What you're really saying is collectivist or individualist. 
Right. If you take the economy part away from it, what you're saying is, are you the kind of person who subscribes to everyone working together for the greater good, or are you the kind of person who subscribes to the idea of individual liberty, where people should be allowed to express themselves and move freely and, and not be fettered by any kind of constraints? Right. That's what it all boils down to. That's a bumper sticker. That's a long bumper sticker. Just truncate it. That's I got, it. I got nothing else. So uh, if you want to learn more about socialism, you should type that word into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And uh, it, since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Yeah. Hey, before I read this, I want to say thanks to our friends Josh and Joel over at Pod on Pod. Yeah. They're a podcast review podcast. And they gave us – we didn't know they were doing this. We just saw it. And they – um. They gave us, like, the best review. It was really, really nice. Yeah, they gave us, like, a very well-thought-out review. It wasn't mm-hmm. just, you know, like, we love these guys. It's a great podcast. They explained what they liked about it. it well, was... that's what they do on their show. I listened to some other ones. And they yeah. really, if you're looking to get into other podcasts, I would start with Pod on Pod and listen to some of their reviews because they'll review, like, the sound quality and the production. Right, exactly. That's what I mean. And just professionalism. and um, it's well thought out. Yeah, it's very well thought out, and they did a great job. So um, Thanks, dude. Yeah, go check out Pod on Pod. They gave Jerry, like, huge, glowing review. Big ups, I think. Is they called they call us that. the new standard in sound quality. That's awesome. You know? Yeah. How about that? Over Mark Marin, even, they said. You just gave me tingles. All right, I'm going to call this email, um, Be Careful, Bex. Um, she was listening to our Elevator podcast, and I mentioned something about hearing that you're less likely to get injured in an accident if you're drunk. And she said uh, she related her story because it happened to her. She was at a house party uh, across the road from a friend of hers, uh, made the mistake of drinking beer than wine, so she was really, really drunk. Uh, she and her friend decided to go into town, got to the main street, and bumped into two guys who said, hey, come over and uh, come have a drink with us at this pub. Um, it was in West London. And she says now when she thinks back at 35 how uh, stupid she was to just like attempt to cross the street and <laughs> join these two random strangers while she was drunk. Uh, she is She's very um, wary of that now. But um, she says she went to cross. I looked first, uh, left, which was my biggest mistake here in London. Because we drive on the left, so you should always look right. Uh-oh. Uh, and you ever been over there? They say that on the street for us dumb Americans, like at the airport. Yeah. They say, look right yeah. <laughs> on the sidewalk. Um, she says she only looked left and decided to take her first, uh, my drunken brain, that she would just step out into the street. I remember my friend screaming, Bex, no. She got hit by a car on her right. She landed on the bonnet, and the driver hit his brakes. That's the hood. And I hit the tarmac. That's the street. Oh, my God. Uh, he was going 40 miles an hour, and he was only about three feet away when I stepped out. Oh, uh, wow. Had no chance of stopping. He got out of the car, got a pen and paper, and wrote my name on it, and then wrote, I accept full responsibility for this accident, and made me sign it as I lay there on the pavement, and then he drove off. <laughs> wow. Um, the guys that uh, offered us to come over uh, and join them for a drink carried me across the road and into the pub and called an ambulance. They stayed with me until it arrived, made sure I was all right. I'm very grateful to them still. My injuries were this, one grazed little finger. That is it. Wow. No head injury, no broken bones, no nothing. And I attribute it to two things. One, I didn't see it coming, so I wasn't tensed up. And two, I was properly drunk, so I didn't tense up. Uh, I did end up in the hospital later that night when I sh- uh, when the shock set in. 
and I got a headache, and my family was uh, worried that I was concussed, which I was not. Um, as an aside, I did not escape the incident mentally unscathed. I suffered a period of real sadness and remorse for weeks afterward because I felt guilty that I had come out of it unharmed when so many little kids get hit by cars through no fault of their own and die. Survivor guilt. Is that what that is? I think so. That's yeah. what Jeff Bridges called it. So that when, uh, what was that called? Survivor. No. Uh, Big Lebowski. Something less. Uh, I think it was called Survivor. He survives a plane wreck and like learns to live now. Yeah, but it wasn't called Survivor. It was something else I can't remember. It was a good movie. Are you sure it wasn't called Survivor? Yeah, it was called uh, I Can't Die or something like that. <laughs> You're thinking of Unbreakable. That's Bruce Willis. No, I watched that the other night again, though. Good movie. It holds up, huh? It does. That's funny because that was the one that was the toughest to watch the first time. I mean, aside from signs and all that claptrap, but I mean, like, the sixth sense goes down easy. Sure. Unbreakable takes a... It, it, it's, it doesn't go down quite as easy, but... I would suspect that means that it still resonates more yeah. later. Yeah, he uh, fearless, fearless. I knew it was something less. He, um, I think the working title was Survivor. <laughs> um, so that is from Bex Bloomfield, and she is a graphic designer at Little Red Robot Design, which you can find at littleredrobot.co.nz because she lives in New Zealand now. Wow! And she is the one who sent in a picture of her awesome dog Stanley. With holding a sign in his mouth saying, I heart S-Y-S-K. That's so cool. Stanley and Bex. Glad everyone's okay. Yep. Uh, maybe take that as a gift. Yeah. It's a mulligan. She's over the guilt by now, I think. Okay. Well, if you uh, have an amazing story that you want to share, we love hearing those. You can tweet it to us at S-Y-S-K podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash stuff you should know. You should send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com and join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 